Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea. In this episode, I speak to Stephen Tellers, who is a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. Stephen is the author of several acclaimed books, and in this interview, we particularly focus on his 2008 work called The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement. It examines how conservative efforts, and in particular the Olin Foundation, were able to significantly influence American legal institutions starting in the 1970s. Stephen's work here is in the field of political science. So that means whilst we touch upon several inherently normative topics, i.e. whether what conservatives did was good or bad, our discussion is primarily intended to be academic, treating this as a case study in hopes of drawing out broader lessons about how political institutions and advocacy work. In doing so, we discuss several interesting questions such as how ideas can become entrenched in American politics, particularly the role of softer factors like professional norms and education, challenges in building a new academic field like law and economics, uh, and in particular here, the role of so-called intellectual and network entrepreneurs, and lastly, the limitations of doing quantitative evaluations of advocacy groups. It is clear, I think, that Stephen sees some real challenges in having any kind of cost-effectiveness measure that doesn't also lead one astray. Uh, he seems to favor having a much longer term strategy that relies a lot on trust between organizations over trying to transfer what, say, GiveWell does for malaria nets into a political context. I think this is a really interesting premise and a really challenging question, uh, and I was just very excited to get to explore it with Stephen. So without further ado, here's the episode. I'm Steve Tellis. I'm a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins. I also am there in the director of the Center for Economy and Society, which is part of the SNF Agora Institute. Um, and I'm a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. And a problem I've been thinking a lot about recently is the role of professions in politics. Um, my claim and some of the work I'm doing, and it's actually related to the to the book that we're discussing today, is that a lot of our a lot of American politics is to one degree or another actually about the scope of legitimate professional power um, and the the left and modern liberalism at least in the United States has sort of assimilated itself into the left progressive and partisan coalition. And the right has increasingly become defined by opposition to professionalism. And so one problem I've been thinking a lot about is what does professionalism look like in an era of polarization, largely around professionalism? Uh, and that's a thing that I'll be running convenings on through the center that I'm running. But I'm also thinking a lot about my own. Yeah, that sounds um, yeah super interesting and and keen. If we get time to to dig into some of your most recent work um, as well, but as you mentioned, a lot of this conversation I think is going to be focused around your two thousand and eight book, uh, the rise of the conservative legal movement. Um, but maybe before we dig too narrowly into that, it feels that one big theme, not just of your book but your writings more general, is that a lot of U.S. political change really relies a lot on supply side changes. Um, that is in contrast to voters demanding certain policies and. Policies politicians responding to that. It actually, being really, uh, it actually being really important that political actors such as think tanks um, and maybe professionals, as you mentioned there as well, supplying certain ideas and kind of the competition uh, in that landscape. So maybe to begin, can you elaborate a bit more on how you just see US politics working like big picture and in particular how this uh, supply versus demand side tension works out? Yeah. So 
I mean, you know, like most of the concepts we use in politics, this is a little bit of a uh, of a construction. Uh, the distinction between supply and demand is um, is not a feature of the world itself, but a thing we impose on the on the world. But that that sort of throat clearing uh, aside, you know, when when we think about demand, right? There's a whole field of people in political science, um, including things like median voter theorem, which is something people may have heard of, including people who are in economics, imagine a system in which um, all there are are voters who've who've all got preferences for some set of uh, social or political outcomes. And then you have politicians who are responding to that. And in the classic versions of median voter theorem, the, the parties are pulled toward the median of voter demand by the by the fact that if they uh, if they don't, then the other party will, you know, will pick up that, um, you know, those sort of, you know, uh, bills left on the sidewalk uh, and, and win elections. And, you know, that was a very powerful generic model of how we think about how politics works um, that was really dominant, actually, for a long time in political science. And so this sort of supply side politics alternative model also, um, you know, has relationships to other work in political science. Um, uh, what I think of as the UCLA School of Parties that thinks about parties as not primarily responding to voter demand, but as coalitions of what they call high policy demanders, right? So, um, you know, the public has actually differentiated mostly into a very small number of people who've got very large, intense demands and a set of voters who are mostly not paying very close attention, which is something you don't have in the classic median voter kind of models, right? And that's what parties are, right? They're like people who sit around a team. And I always joke that they're, you know, they're like people who take a blood oath um, with each other to stick together, uh, whatever else happens. Uh, And they, uh, those parties compete mainly to try and advance the goals of those high policy demanders. Um, And so you think about the modern Democratic Party is a coalition of feminists, environmentalists, um, public sector unions, African-Americans, right? That, that's what they really are, right? Is that small group. Um, now, they have to get the votes of that larger public, right? That, dema- that set of demanders. Um, but they do that under the constraints of fundamentally having at least their, their core policies set by those, um, those high policy demanders. So that that's one thing to say is that's one, one, one way to think about the supply-demand distinction. The other way to think about this is that, um, you know, every modern developed country already just has an enormous amount of policy, right? There's an enormous amount of state already built. The government's just in all kinds of things in a way that it was not a hundred years ago. And thus, a lot of politics is about what you're going to do with the stuff you've already got, right? What are you going to, what are like incremental changes you're going to make on top of that already existing mass of policy? And so a lot of what is actually on the agenda are issues that are thrown up by that existing mass of public policy, right? So we've already got all this environmental 
policy. A lot of the questions is not what we would not what we would do in the abstract, but what we are going to do given all the stuff we've already got. Right. And then the last thing I'd say is a lot of that modern state is governed to a greater or lesser degree by forms of professional knowledge and organization. Right. So when we've created this modern state, we also created all these forms of specialized knowledge to help guide those parts of the government. Um, and as a consequence, an enormous amount of politics is driven to a greater or lesser degree by those forms of professional knowledge, right? Or in some cases, the people who are opposed to them. And that really is in some sense, part of the story of the book that we're talking about is that um, you know, the modernization of the, of the American state went along with tr a transformation of the law. And that's chapter two of my book on the liberal legal network, um, in which I argue that liberalism got a great degree of its power, liberalism, as we understand the term in the United States, it's very important to make that distinction. Um, uh, liberalism got a lot of its power by assimilating into the professions, right? So the uh, so liberalism got professionalized um, at the same time as the professions got liberalized, and so that sort of you know combination of liberal or progressive ideological principles and professional scientific insulated knowledge became one form, which became a guiding part of the American liberalism and the Democratic Party. And over time, the Republican Party became a, a kind of center for opposition to that form of, of sort of liberal professional knowledge. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let me maybe try and draw out some of the themes that you mentioned here. Um, one thing that you mentioned right at the top was, uh, you know, maybe the importance of parties and in particular party coalitions. Um, there seems to be an important difference between caring about liberalism or conservatism, you know, versus there being, you know, a coalition of like several special interest groups who might care a particular amount about a certain set of policies um, and being interested in um, influencing that specific policy. Um, you also then talked about um, specialized and professional knowledge that given that, you know, politics in the world at large is just like very complicated, uh, government works through a lot of um, uh, bureaucracy and regulations and uh, legal precedences and what have you, that this also creates uh, barriers um, for people to be able to influence um, these th this type of knowledge and uh, this type of policy. And then thirdly, I think you were hitting uh, at what a lot of this um, uh, book of yours um, seems to be about, which is um, that this can also create some kind of entrenchment um, that, you know, spreading your professional knowledge or, or you know, pushing for a policy or a, a specific legal precedence entrenches some kind of uh, rule uh, or effects on the world that then become difficult for the other party uh, to reverse. And that when we kind of like enter the story here with your uh, conservative legal movement, uh, that a lot of like liberal ideas in the judicial system were entrenched. Um, maybe to kind of continue, can you talk a bit more about what this entrenchment in particular looks like uh, and what some of the uh, non-electoral sources of it are that people can can try to use in order to create that entrenchment. Yeah. So again, a lot of this book is um, 
takes the strategic problematic of conservatives as its central set of questions, right? So I'm not necessarily arguing from the point of view of conservatives, but I'm trying to imagine what the world looked like from uh, from their vantage point, right? Um, and so from their vantage point, what they saw is exactly what you're talking about, that liberalism had in various ways gotten entrenched it through mechanisms that were not at least immediately alterable by electoral power, right? So it wasn't like, so for, and this is the distinction here, I think is, is useful, right? Imagine that you actually went out and won a big uh, electoral victory, right? You know, you could go and just pass a bill moving tax rates up or down, right? There's a lever you could actually go and pull there, right? That's actually there, right? Um, you know, if you think, oh, the the books that, you know, kids read in um, elementary school are too progressive, right? It's not obvious there's like a lever you can just go and pull that will like produce a lot of new teachers who are teaching other kinds of books, right? Because those are produced by some process that is not immediately alterable by electoral mechanisms. And the same thing is true you know, now getting away from to the more of the subject we're looking at here, um, you know, if you win elections in the United States, and this is obviously one thing that British people will find extremely weird, right? Um, but, you know, all, you know, our process of staffing the judiciary is intensely political. Um, the process, you know, of, uh, of identifying people who will be on the federal judiciary the people who will be, uh, you know, legal clerks to those those people who are also very um, important is an entirely partisan project uh, in the United States. Um, and on the other hand, we have expectations for what someone who is an appropriate judge or justice looks like. And those are often fairly elite, right? We expect, you know, people who come from Yale and Harvard and those kinds of elite places and who have gone through these various other stations of the cross of elite production, right? Certain kinds of jobs in government or other kinds of ways of marking them out as being appropriate for these, you know, elite kind of positions. And um, if you are a, uh, a person who, let's say you're a Republican and you won election and now you could say, oh, we, we need to change the judiciary, right? you have to work with the pool of potential appointees for that that's already in place, right? Those things that, that, that created that pool of potential appointees was originally produced like 15 or 20 years ago. Um, that's really the supplies. And now, you know, you do get to choose among the people who are in the pool, but the pool is something over which, at least in the short term, you have relatively little control. And so that's one way to think about the supply side. The supply side part of that story is the thing that determines all of those, those massive people who are available for appointment. And then also the ideas that they have absorbed and bring into their positions, right? And so if you think that liberals mostly controlled, say, law schools, right? 
Well, law schools is where people originally get, you know, often identified, where they develop their underlying ideas, right? And so control of those institutions turns out to be very powerful for setting that pool that one or the other party is actually choosing from. And that's where I think, um, you know, there's a story in the book, which is, I think, quite relevant to your interest in philanthropy about time horizons, right? A lot of work in politics has have very long um, lead times before they produce results. Uh, so it's not just like, you know, you, you buy a vaccine, you stick it in somebody's arm, they're vaccinated, right? That's all happening in a pretty short time. And then you can evaluate whether or not that produced the desired results on a fairly short time horizon. Lots of stuff in politics is actually what you might think of as political investment. And it's quite distributed and produces results over, in some cases, you know, decadal um, spans of time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and maybe to um, extend the analogy that you gave before of kind of embodying this hypothetical, strategic, conservative mindset. Uh, if your policy goal is to ban books, then as you said, there isn't an obvious dial. And even if I were to pass a policy that tries to ban progressive books, I will quickly find myself with a lawsuit or in the judicial courts because it interacts and intersects with all these like previously big body of laws. And then I am in exactly what you kind of pointed uh, there to be this like, judicial, you know, playing field or something where it really matters who the judges are, what the precedences are, what the norms are, and everything else. And it turns out that, you know, policies and, and actions from many decades ago will have a strong bearing as to like whether I can get that like policy passed or not. So turning to the 1960s then, when I believe um, the story of uh, this like rise in uh, the conservative legal movement starts. Uh, can you begin by explaining a bit about what conservatives were up against, or rather what the, uh, you know, judiciary looked like, and in particular, what um, public interest law uh, was and looked like? So in the the book, it's really, so I, I'm in within social sciences, I'm what's called a historical institutionalist. Um, so whenever I'm trying to explain something, I'm usually starting from the antecedent of the thing I'm trying to explain, right? Because again, most of my expectations is we're not starting um, from a tabula rasa, right? We're starting somewhere. We're starting in the flow of history and thus what people are doing is almost always a response to what somebody else is doing. Right? With, you know, and in most cases in politics, at any one time, there is a kind of dominant regime, right? And thus people who are acting in politics are responding to the political incentives and entrenchment, as you were talking about before, that's produced by that dominant regime. Uh, and one story about that is also that even in trying to alter that regime, to do that, sometimes you actually have to operate within the conditions that that antecedent regime produced. Right? And so, you know, the story inevitably begins with what I talk about as the liberal legal network, right? That's the status quo ante, um, that something really big in the legal profession changes in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s. Um, and I draw in part on works like my, my Niskanen colleague, Jeffrey Cabas Services, incredible book called The Guardians, which is about 
Kingman Brewster, who was the president of Yale, who was this transformative um, university president who sort of modernized Yale. And part of his story there is that, um, you know, a lot of the American elite was, you know, I'll just say, you know, freaked out by the 60s, right? They were freaked out by the by the ele- level of social disorder, by riots, by all this kind of social movement activity. And on the one hand, they wanted to preserve a lot of, um, of establishment institutions, but they made the calculation that the way to do that was uh, in the terms of, that they used in the time was to bring the kids in from the street and you know, bring them into these elite institutions. Um, so, and that's the part about you know, liberalism getting professionalized, right? What they wanted is, what they worried about was a sort of left that was at, entirely outside of institutions that was in these forms of social movement activity. But to do that, then these professions had to become liberalized, right? And so that's the kind of dialectic there is things like Elite law schools go through this process, right, where the and they also in the time are expanding, right, the Yale Law School, Harvard Law School grow enormously and they grow at the same time as the kind of people going into those law schools uh, are changing. So the ideological composition of the at least the educational elite of the legal profession changes quite dramatically in this period. Um, and so it goes from, you know, law, you know, really being an extension of, you know, to Marxian terms of capital, right? That's what law schools are really there for, were to help, you know, um, and they, you know, to some degree they still are, and in some ways they always were doing that, but they were also bringing in all these people who were thinking about law as having a different kind of role in American society. And so out of those law schools where you think about things like the National um, uh, Resources Defense Council, which is one of the main public interest law firms that was created, you know, literally exactly at Yale Law School by a bunch of, you know, recent Yale Law School graduates who, you know, who have this idea of what law can do, partially looking back at the civil rights movement and looking at what kind of changes they were able to do through law and start trying to replicate that in all these other forms of lawyering. This is the same time that, you know, Congress is also passing a lot of bills that make it easier to use the law to um, to change public policy. I don't want to bore you with all all the details, but, um, you know, the state is becoming more uh, receptive to that form of policy change through through law. And so when you when you add all this up, the argument is that um, there's a lot of new ways to change public policy without really getting a lot of input from voters. Right. Once you start creating, again, in in particular, some of these very vague laws that get created in the 1970s, the Environmental Protection Act, um, the Clean Water Act, they all have these very large generalities. Uh, but you can build on them, right? You can use your power in regulatory agencies and the courts to make meaning out of these vague statutes uh, and to often create enormous change. And you see the same thing, you know, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
was the uh, was the head of the ACLU Women's Rights Project. They build all of this really titanic, you know, social change uh, in women's rights out of, you know, often a very thin read of underlying law combined with some amount of general social movement activity. And from the point of view of conservatives, they're looking at this and saying, good Lord, right, we're actually starting to win more elections in this period. And yet we seem to just keep losing and losing and losing and losing. And especially when you look at the Nixon administration, which it explicitly run on reversing the role of the judiciary in advancing liberal or progressive policy, and they do that, and yet, you know, uh, Roe v. Wade uh, gets passed, written by Nixon um, uh, justice. Uh, lots of these other changes, right? The court still ends up becoming this powerful engine for left of center change through the 70s and even the, into the, the 80s. And that, in my story, causes conservatives to start looking at these underlying supply side um, uh, constraints on their ability to reverse uh, legal liberalism. So you have this um, rise in like lots, lots of different domains. But on the one hand, um, you mentioned the ACLU there. I can also think of the NACP and like Ralph Nader's work on like uh, seatbelts and, and auto safety and what have you not. But these rise of um, special interest groups who see the law and the judiciary as a way outside of elections in order to be able to you know create actual uh, impact uh, on, on people's uh, lives by going through the legal channels. And you also, um, what I kind of interpreted um, to be this kind of like shift in how lawyers saw themselves and how judges saw themselves as well, that they took arguments that were like grounded on serving the public interest or in actually like specifying some of these laws. They took those arguments more seriously and it created this, this culture that seemed to like generally favor liberal policy goals, even though, uh, or even when um, conservatives were holding elected positions. Um, and I guess like one question then is to ask um, why this favored liberalism and why it didn't favor um, conservatives. So why didn't you have by the time of the 1960s or 1970s, you know, the same kind of infrastructure, or the same kind of ecosystem that catered to conservative interests as you did uh, catering to, to liberal interests? Yeah. So, you know, by the early to mid 70s, at least some conservatives are starting to look at this and saying, okay, we, you know, we, we can't do this just by winning elections and putting our people into office. Um, and so one response you get is in conservative public interest law. And the theory there is, well, liberals are winning because they're going to courts and nobody's making the other argument. So if we created our own set of public interest law firms that would provide the other side, then judges would not um, keep advancing all of this liberal public interest um, uh, law-driven policy change. Now, that turns out to be a mistake um, for reasons they're only going to you know, really recognize uh, almost a decade later. And one of the reasons for that is that gives up all of the agenda setting to the people who are trying to create the change, right? Because you're saying, okay, they're trying to do stuff. They, they're the ones who are figuring out where all the battles are going to be. And all we're going to do is like show up wherever that battle happens to be and try and push back. Um, and, you know, agenda control matters a lot. It matters a lot to me determining what people are talking about. It, agenda control also matters because the other side is 
determining the cases. They're determining the framing um, about how these issues are being uh, are being you know established, uh, and uh, they're also setting the larger normative context in which these um, things are being debated. And they're also drawing on a set of ideas about what's uh, normative and appropriate uh, for judges to do that are being set, you know, by a whole bunch of other kinds of institutions. And this is one of the reasons why law schools are so important, because that's where a lot of that sort of legal meaning and appropriateness gets created. Uh, So on the one hand, right, conservatives try to create these network of conservative public interest law firms, but they're mostly not bringing their own cases. They're not setting the agenda. Uh, and only later do conservatives realize that that set of investments was, uh, was a mistake. Um, now, at the same time, one thing that is going on, uh, and this goes back a little bit to the 1960s, is the development of law and economics. Um, and law and economics is developing um, mostly in economics departments and then sort of spilling over into, uh, into law schools. And a set of people there are developing a number of tools to analyze law through the tools of mostly price theory economics and create institutions around there. So in my story, this guy, Henry Manny, who developed the the Law and Economics Center and created these um, seminars for federal judges, is doing some of that project of changing legal meaning, uh, changing. Now, not that's not in the entire range of issues. It's mostly in narrowly economic kinds of issues. But um, they are, in fact, especially on on regulation, on tort law and property, all these kinds of areas, starting to build up a profound critique of legal liberalism and a critique that can eventually be applied to actual cases um, and cases not just in courts, but also in regulatory agencies. So on that part of the conservative legal movement is in fact engaged in this broader battle of ideas earlier than other parts of the conservative legal. I wanna uh, speak a bit more about what you were describing at the beginning there, which is um, conservatives being maybe too reactive to the agenda setting of uh, like liberal uh, lawyers and, and, and liberal lawsuits and stuff. Um, one thing that was really interesting in your book is you made a case that at the beginning, conservative legal efforts were almost too closely tied to business interests rather than being like more ideologically driven. And that created a bunch of problems. Um, can you maybe explain uh, yeah, like what the, what the reasoning there is? Yeah, so that's a really important argument in the, uh, in the book. And in fact, it's sort of a theme I've, I've kept going with in later work. I wrote this book called The Captured Economy with Brink Lindsay that was also playing on this distinction between the interests of business and the interests of um, of free markets and that they don't always go together, right? Um, business wants pro-business policy, but pro-business is not always, again, the same as the ideological objective of 
uh, of markets. That's an insight that goes all the way back to Adam Smith. <laughs> right. right. If businesses um, get subsidies, they're not gonna they're not gonna turn them down necessarily. Yeah. You know what is it? If Smith says something to the effect of you know it's uh, you know never that two businessmen get together and they try and you know hatch a conspiracy against the public interest. Um, so yeah. So the one, one problem with business is um, also that they didn't actually understand these these kind of domains of idea production. Um, uh, and that goes back a little bit to the supply side story, right? That once we have a politics that's dominated by ideas and professional knowledge, in order to, to counter that, you have to counter it with the same tools or the same instruments of power, right? You have to counter it with ideas that are equally recognizable and authoritative as those being provided by the other side, right? But uh, business were not in a good position to do that. They were not in a good position to have that kind of domain-specific knowledge of how to compete in those in those areas, right? Um, also, again, they weren't lawyers. They didn't really understand how public interest law as a kind of political technology worked. Um, and that's why, again, they had this idea that, you know, Ralph Nader and all these sort of consumer advocates are out there pushing, you know, pushing stuff. And if only we provided the other side that that would um, make everything better, right? That was a kind of simplistic idea. Um, and then finally, right, they, you know, they didn't recognize that distinction between the argument for markets and the argument for business, right? And the argument for markets has a kind of idealistic, um, public interested claim, right? Um, and as a way that you can actually appeal to people, including young people's idealism, in a way that you know protecting the the interest of business doesn't have that same kind of oomph as a thing to do in the public domain. And so that's one I think. And then finally, right, business has its own interests, which are often not the same as the uh, defense of free market. So in the book, I have this discussion of this Denver cable case um, where some of the young idealistic lawyers who happen to get into the Mountain States Legal Defense Fund, who then appear later in the book, um, say, oh, you know, uh, they're creating, you know, a new cable network in, in Denver. They're going to create a, you know, establish a monopoly for it. That doesn't look like free markets to us. We should go and sue. But it turns out that many of the people who were in favor of that were the same people who were the funders for the Mountain State Legal Defense Fund. Right? Um, and that's one where the interests of, um, of business, at qua business and businessmen, qua businessmen, is in tension with the ideas of you know, economic competition that many of these people, you know, the more idealistic people in this uh, wanted to advance. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to maybe um, distinguish as well whether the issue here was that, you know, businesses just didn't have the knowledge or were too short term in their planning to really see, you know, what their underlying interests or what their underlying best strategy is, which was this more uh, you know, ideological or like deeper driven, like change in the law, or whether we should just interpret this as uh, this kind of a strategy was not a good fit for business interests. So at some point, business people just dropped it. And it was instead picked up by people who's did have this kind of interest, which were the more ideologically driven people. Um, let me know if that distinction makes sense. And, and where you and if so, if like where, where you kind of lie on that. 
Yeah, so I, I think this is getting at a important general concept in the book that I think is applicable beyond the beyond the case. And again, that just to say this this is me stepping back and being sort of nerdy and social scientific for a bit, right? One of the challenges in a case study is always to figure out what you can extract from the case that's not specific to the case, that's more more general. And I think this is one of those points which is about the importance of time horizons in politics, um, that, you know, politics like investment in the real world, right? Always there's some gap between the original resources you're putting in and the outcome that you're trying to produce, right? And that's a variable, right? Things vary enormously on that, um, that, on that sort of dimension. And, um, you know, now when you think about this in finance, and now I know I'm getting very into sort of EA-ish sort of terminology, right? You know, one of the, the underlying claims, which I can't demonstrate empirically, is at least in politics, um, the, the larger gains um, over time and spread over a large number of projects are, um, you know, come from the things that have longer time horizons, right? So it's just like if you think about in, uh, in regular investing, right, if you've got a three-month time horizon, well, you're going to have to buy a money market mutual fund and you're going to get, you know, you're just going to get what that has, right? If you're willing to invest over a really long period of time, right, and spread over a lot of possibly low probability bets, the return of the whole portfolio is potentially much higher, right? Now, that assumes a lot of stuff that you're actually capable of selecting, you know, on average, the right projects and everything. But the, the basic insight is if you're stuck on short time horizon projects, then you're going to get short time horizon returns, right? Now, that, you know, whether or not you can invest for the long term is institutionally and in some sense intellectually determined, right? First of all, you actually have to understand intellectually that there are these long-term returns. If you don't understand that, then you're never going to be out there trying to do that kind of work, right? And you need to be in a situation where whoever's providing the resources is willing to wait, right? If you, if, you know, if you're, if you're, if you've got an, uh, at least in this case, a policy investor who's like, I want to measure this and see what your, you know, deliverable is in a year. And I want to see that you either produce policy or not, right? Well, you've got a much smaller set of investments that you can possibly do because they're only the ones that might actually pay off in a year, right? And so I do think, bit, you know, one, in my experience, right, people from uh, a business background often need to be talked out of the idea that they need to be able to show highly measurable results in a very short time horizon. Um, and they need to be talked out of the idea that politics is a kind of linear process in which you work through a determined set of, uh, of steps and then you always know where you are on the way to that, that, that outcome, right? That's simply not the way politics operates. And it's certainly not the way the politics operates in the United States, right? And so I do think that there, there is often a mismatch between what the most skilled policy or intellectual entrepreneurs know about the way that long-term policy change happens and both the mindset and the institutional arrangements 
that people in business have, right? And so in some sense, a lot of the story of the book is how conservatism got at least some degree of distance from its underlying material basis, right? And in that process, was able to create a series of policy and intellectual investments that had very large long-term payoffs. Mm. Yeah. And one of the other things that really struck me in the book about these long-term payoffs from, from these investments is that um, in some ways, the investment actually seemed pretty small if we just look at it on a material basis. I think a lot of your book is focused around uh, the Olin Foundation, which when I looked it up on, on Wikipedia, it says that over, I think, almost 50 years or half a century of existing, it gave away maybe $400 million, which is a lot of money. But, you know, relatively speaking to how much you know money gets spent in politics as a whole, I'm aware there is like some time confounding going on here. But in the 2020 election, I think something like 16 billion was spent in that like one presidential um, election alone. Um, and I guess that like gets me to this like other question you were talking about, the importance of having um, a patron or a funder who's willing to make these long term investments. But for this whole story, it doesn't strike me that just having money alone was the single bottleneck here, or at least it wasn't requiring billions and billions upon dollars. Um, it seems to have really relied a lot on people with uh, intellectual and political visions um, as well. And I'm, I'm curious what more you have to, to say on that point. And I think that's true on both the left and the right. So when you go back again to chapter two, which I'll just say is like the most under read part of this book, because people want to read it and they want to read about conservatives and they don't want to read about liberals. Um, but I talk a lot there about the Ford Foundation and its role in developing the liberal legal network. And that's in things like building um, law school clinics, right, to help change the political culture of lawyering in the United States, right? Supporting liberal public interest law in a whole bunch of different domains. Um, you know, they spent a fair amount of money, um, but they did it in a very strategic way with a long-term, um, you know, set of, of outcomes, right? They could have invested that in much more short-term, and some of those did actually pay off very quickly, right? There, I mentioned the NRDC, which is this thing created by a bunch of very young left of center lawyers, right? They, they, they started going and, um, you know, suing people, it got results actually very quickly, right? But a lot of the other things they did played out over a much longer period of, um, of time. And the same thing is true on the conservative side, right? So the first thing I would say is, it matters a lot, um, uh, you know, especially when you're doing advocacy. And I think, again, direct services is a different question with a whole different set of domains. And I think it is really important to keep those distinct. Uh, but, you know, the, um, you know, the time horizon over which you invest, right, and the information and knowledge that you have that drives that investments, at least in advocacy, is way more important than the just sheer amounts that you have, right? Um, you know, it, it's really, really easy to waste money investing in politics, and people do it all the time. You mentioned all the money that's spent on elections, you know, the um, you know, with a very few exceptions, right? The the ROI on invest on electoral investments, at least in like things like presidential campaigns. I think when you get down to like school board elections, I think the ROI or, you know, can actually go up quite a lot. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, and, and at least in investments in politics, 
investments in uh, elections really are enormous, right? Um, whereas, uh, you know, investments in governance, I think the, there's a much stronger evidence base that those have a much higher ROI. Um, but they need to be driven also by the right kinds of knowledge and the right kind of <clears throat> time horizon and the right kind of strategy. Um, and that's where I think a lot of those questions, at least in this area, need to go is, you know, where does that strategic knowledge and capacity come from that translates inputs into outputs? Yeah. Yeah. So so let's think maybe a bit about what these high ROI investments look like, um, maybe to offer one potentially kind of false dichotomy here. But, but what, something that really struck me from your book is that personalities seem on the one hand to matter a lot. So finding the right person to give the grant to seems to matter a ton because you're really betting on some of these uh, you know, individuals who kind of return the entire portfolio. So for law and economics, uh, one of the figures here uh, seemed to be uh, Henry Mann, who just seemed like a powerhouse in terms of uh, getting people uh, on board and, and joining up. Um, for this kind of like mission. But then on the other hand, it also seems that like personalities don't matter a lot. And I also like read a lot of your book as saying, um, law and economics worked because it didn't matter who taught it. As long as you could get it on the curriculum in a law school, it tended to make people conservative. Um, and in that sense, you know, getting the right lecturer or something didn't matter that much. Um, and I'm curious how you kind of square this here in terms of like how important talent is, and maybe in particular in terms of like ordering when talent really matters uh, and when you can scale something. Yeah. So, you know, when I was writing the book, uh, I was sort of obsessed by this, you know, very old debate about the relationship between structure and agency, um, which runs all the way through the book. And there's a long discussion of it at the end that maybe only I was actually interested in, um, that's uh, your mileage may vary, as they say in the United States. And so on the one hand, I think structure is really important, right? A lot of this book, the reason why chapter two exists, right, is to make clear what the structure that conservatives had to work within, right? Even as they're trying to change it, they still have to also work within the constraints that that structure produced, right? So again, at any one time, people are doing two things in politics, right? They're trying to milk as much as you can get through the strategic opportunities that are created by the existing regime. And then they're making investments that are trying to alter that regime so that their successors will work under a different set of structural conditions, if that makes sense. And that's very abstract, right? Um, but they're do they're always doing both. They're always trying to do some balance. And even their ability to transform a regime is conditioned by the regime that they're actually trying to transform. And so that's the abstract way to make uh, to make the the point. Um, now, again, I think recognizing the weaknesses in the existing regime is very agential activity, right? That is being able to sort of know enough about the system you're trying to change. Really, you know, you need a few people who really have that knowledge, that insight, right? And so you mentioned Henry Manny, right? Henry really saw something. He saw something that everybody else or most other people didn't, right? He saw both the weaknesses and what the strategy for agential action in the world was that you could do that could alter that 
regime, right? So in this case, just take it from less abstract, one of his big activities were these seminars for federal judges where he took, you know, all these federal judges away to nice resorts and gave them, you know, two weeks or at one point it was like a month of, you know, a boot camp in basic price theory economics, right? With some applications to law, but lots of that was really just like getting them basic price theory economics. With the assumption that if you did that, eventually how they saw and how they looked at issues, issues that you couldn't even always predict, right, would be different on average, right? That's the way to think about it, right? So it wasn't that there were these really close causal connections, right? But that if you you did this, if you, you know, applied that treatment over the entire population, you would at the margin start changing, um, changing, you know, decisions and outcomes. Uh, now, I think that's one where, you know, a very small number of people who have that kind of blinding insight really matters. And I, I have a similar story about the founders of the Institute for Justice and the Center for Individual Rights, which are the two big, what I call second generation conservative public interest law firms. Um, and Michael um, Horowitz, who wrote this famous Horowitz report in the early 80s on conservative public interest law, right? It was really important that they saw through all the mess of the world into the underlying structure they were dealing with and could translate that into a sense for what new investments could be made that would be sensitive and responsive to the nature of the structural circumstance, right? So in that sense, people matter enormously, right? And often a very small number of people who really have that basic insight to where they are and what kind of investments would have the most leverage, right? Now, it's also the case that to find those, you often have to invest in a lot of people who may superficially look like people with blinding insight, but who in retrospect have dumb ideas. So it's not always obvious. It's, it's more obvious in retrospect now who were those people than it was at the time. Um, and so from the point of view of an investor in this activity, we make the argument, I make the argument in the book about this concept of spread betting, right? That in fact, our knowledge of what's going to work is almost always limited, especially in these domains. And therefore, you often really need to bet over a number of, to some degree, contradictory theories of change. Instead of having a single theory of change, you need to be supple and say, you know, I actually don't know, right? Which, again, is one of the things that's really hard to do. It's really hard to have that recognition of how little you know. And to be willing to bet over a number of plausible, but again, sometimes mutually exclusive theories of action. Yeah. One bit I loved uh, about your book as well was kind of drawing attention to these like failed grant applications as being a really useful bit of historical evidence in order to see that like, sure, in hindsight, it might look obvious what the right idea was and who the best candidate was. But you can see from these failed grant applications that it actually required a lot of spread betting and a lot of failed attempts um, in order to get there. I think it's really important to recognize that one one thing that's that's necessary in this domain is, you know, a willingness to fail, 
right? That is, if you're too worried that you're going to make an investment, and it's not going to work out, then it's really hard to do really serious spread betting, right? Because you're going to be too conservative. You're going to hug more to the median of theories of action when in many cases, right, you know, um, some of the really high return on investment actions are out there toward the tails in terms of what seems like plausibility. And so, you know, and, and, and that's another case where that's a highly institutionally determined factor, whether or not um, you're actually able to withstand making a bunch of investments that don't work out and make, you know, you know, as, as they say in, in, in sort of in VC, right, make it all up on one bet out of 20. Right. Where you then you know, the, the return on your whole portfolio is really is really enormous. Um, but it's only, you know, in VC, it's only because people have created institutional expectations that that's, you know, that's how you do it, that they can get away with, you know, having 19 out of 20 things mostly bust. Yeah. 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 And um, you, you talk a lot um, in your book about the grantees themselves and kind of the, the journeys that they went through. But I'm, I'm curious what Olin staff, um, so this foundation, what their own grant makers look like, both in terms of like background. Um, you mentioned previously that maybe some of the problem for business uh, groups when they were pursuing the previous conservative legal strategy was that they had too much of a business mindset. I'm just curious what the actual background of grant makers were themselves. Were they lawyers? Um, were they professional you know, philanthropists that they worked at other foundations before? Um, and also maybe what their relationship with grantees themselves were that enabled them to take this more spread betting approach uh, when previously some of the predecessors didn't? So I'll just take the case of Olin. So Olin was really run for most of its time, once it became sort of the formalized foundation that it became in the late 70s, by basically two people. Um, you know, earlier they, they had been a little closer to like somebody's personal philanthropy of John and Mullen. Um, and then it gradually became more like what we think of as a, a, a modernized kind of foundation. Um, and that's Mike Joyce and then Jim, uh, Jim Pearson. And so Mike Joyce, Jim Pearson had been a uh, political scientist. He'd been, I think, at, at, uh, at Penn. Um, so, you know, he came out of this conservative intellectual world. So he was indigenous to that world. He was an embedded, you might think of as an embedded person. Mike Joyce had been at a, um, a previous um, uh, foundation, was involved in a lot of these sort of neoconservative 1970s networks. He knew Irving Kristol, who was just very, was known as sort of the godfather of neoconservatism. So both of these were people who, unlike those people in business, were very tightly coupled to at least what was there of the conservative intellectual network, right? They were a part of that. They were not somehow separate from it. Um, and I think that mattered a lot because one, they just knew all the people. Um, they knew who they were as people. They could talk as people who were, you know, not the term they would have used, but as comrades, right? Um, you know, it wasn't like, there was a set of donors, right, who were highly socially differentiated from the pool of people that they were investing in. Um, and so I think that's, you know, now, again, you can also out of that system, you can also get 
sort of grantee capture, right? Where you're, you know, things where they, you know, you see a lot of community foundations that have this problem, right? Where the local community of, um, of, uh, of grantees sort of captures the foundation and they can never do anything interesting. Um, but the thing to note about, about Olin, the other thing to say note about Olin is they had an unbelievably small staff, right? You know, when you go into the Ford Foundation building and if you've never done it, if you ever go to New York, you absolutely should. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? It's, a, this, it's like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, um, you know, and they have just these enormous staff um, there. And Olin really was just a very small, like a handful of people. Uh, and they generally made um, they they generally didn't make what we call project grants. They generally made um, institutional grants to organizations, and with the expectation that the organizational executive would allocate capital inside the organization. So mostly, the unit of investment was the organization as opposed to the project. And I think this is super important for thinking about the kind of investment you might do in advocacy. Now, part of this was based on their understanding of what you might consider to be the, the, the application of Hayek's information problem to philanthropy, right? which is, you know, philanthropy in its own way is kind of like central planning, right? Um, and the question is, does that actor at the center, like the philanthropic investor, really have the knowledge to know how to make all of the you know, individual allocative decisions you need to make in order to change public policy? Or does the actor who's closer to the action, right, who's got you know, um, dirt under their fingernails, right, or who in engineering terms is the person who's bending metal really know how to make those allocative decisions. And so conservatives made the judgment that the right unit of investment was the organization. Now, that's partially, I think, reflective of the fact that they had such a small staff that they couldn't allocate the projects if they wanted to, right? Just they didn't have enough people. And I've always say, to some degree, in philanthropy, um, you know, activity is like a gas that expands to fill the available space, right? If you've got an enormous number of staff, right, well, they can do a lot of, you know, processing individual project grants, right? If you've got a really small number of staff, well, they're going to have to just sort of pick organizations and let the organizational executives choose what to actually invest in. And so one really important thing to say about Olin is they had a small number of people, they were investing in um, in organizations rather than than um, individual projects, right? And they mostly stuck with those organizations over the long term. They didn't mainly pull their money in and out until, unless, like in the case of conservative public interest law, they came to believe that their investments um, were ill ill judged, and then they they would they would pull back strongly. Right. And I think all of those patterns are, you know, in the modern context, at least of left of center investing, are not at all how people run philanthropy. Right. But the most successful conservative, you know, the most successful foundation in actually changing public policy, that's how they ran the railroad. Yeah. I'm especially curious to dig into 
by what metrics or by what information conservatives or the Olin Foundation then did cut projects when they decided that it was like no longer worth the investment. I think that uh, spread betting and taking a lot of risk and things like especially seems important early on when you're also able to do that. But at some point, real trade-offs must exist, right? Between giving a million dollars to this foundation or that foundation, and you need to scale back um, some of your losses as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a bit about how Olin approached that problem. And if not for quantitative measures, um, like what information it was able to use to, to make those calls. Yeah, so I actually asked uh, Jim Pearson, who is the president of the Olin Foundation, um, about this, about how did he evaluate his grantees? And this isn't going to work because it's not a video podcast, but he literally <laughs> just put his, his hands up to his ear, like pretending to, to hold a phone and just, right, th that he did what you might consider to be network-based evaluation, right? That is because he was he had a fairly high degree of network centrality, and he had a lot of different sources of information that he wasn't entirely reliant, reliant on the grantee for information about the grantee, right? Um, he got a lot of information based on what I'll just call gossip, right? That is, in any network like that, right, people talk about each other, right? And they go to each other's activities and they see who seems to be on the ball and who policymakers are paying attention to and who they're not. Um, and that information is usually present inside of a network. Now, whether or not the investor can always access that information is another story, right? And that's where I get this idea of embedded um, knowledge uh, generation, I think is an important part of that story. Uh, it's important to be in both in those networks, but also not captured by them which is always a delicate balance. But I do think that that is what they did. They didn't use any, as far as I could tell, quantitative metrics um, to evaluate uh, any of this. Um, they mostly evaluated this based on um, what you might consider to be sort of informal reputational measures. Now, maybe they could have you know, hired a consulting firm to go and formalize those informal reputational met, you know, metrics. But um, I think they actually would have lost knowledge in that process rather than gaining it. There's actually something that's lost from formalization. Um, so it is important to recognize that they didn't do any of the stuff that everybody nowadays thinks is entirely appropriate and um, in some sense required for doing advocacy evaluation. Right. Um, they did it. Now, the other thing to say is they, um, you know, they were a spin down foundation. Right. So they uh, were not a perpetual foundation like most of the large foundations that's going to go on forever and spends five percent of assets every year. They were spending down at a much more aggressive rate. So even though their endowment was a, you know, a pale comparison to Ford or others, right? They were getting a lot more out of it because they were spending, they were spending out. They were expecting to go, uh, to go, to go out of business as they did, in fact, go out of business. And when I was writing my book, um, literally there was almost nobody there. And I got in right before they were going to start pulping all the files. Right? <laughs> so that was, and that was very much by design because John M. Olin thought, 
if he handed over the foundation to somebody else, eventually they would not be consistent with his beliefs, right? So to say that also, the the tension you mentioned, right, if you're not doing this, then you, if you're doing this, you're not doing that, was a little less pressing on them because they were spending down and they didn't. Now, again, that, that this or that is always there. It's, an, it's inevitable. The other thing to say is at this point in time, there were not so many conservative organizations, right? So their problem was that, um, and that also in some ways I've always speculated, gave those conservative organizations more leverage vis-a-vis their grant, their grant maker. Because even if their grant maker wanted them to do that, they could say, look, we're AI and we're the only game in town, right? And we want to actually get a project grant. We want a general operating grant. And we want to invest this the way we want to, right? Now, I think some of that's changed over time because now there's just way more conservative organizations. And to some degree, that gives conservative donors more leverage over them. Now, I think that leverage has probably not been to their advantage, but that that is, but I think that's one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why left of center donors can have so much more power to insist on, you know, project grants to their grantees is there just so many left to center organizations compared to conservative yeah i think that's a really important point that the olin foundation was really there at the period of time that you were field building this new conservative legal movement as opposed to um scaling it up or like nurturing it like the size that it is now such that uh, $400 million was like, in some senses, uh, too much money. I mean, like another way that you could kind of like flip the question is like, ask if the Odin Foundation didn't have an endowment or eventual like spending of $400 million, but rather $4 billion, would it really be able to create 10 times as much impact? Um, or at some point, would you just have to like tap out and then revert to something like the, uh, you know, um, perhaps more, more, more useless kind of like election spending, um, that you were like pointing to. Um, yeah, before. I think it's almost certainly the case. Now, again, they were not the only, they were, you know, they all, there was also the Bradley Foundation, there was the Scape Foundation, there were another, a number of other conservative foundations. Smith Richardson Foundation was conservative, it's not really now. Um, uh, but they, you know, so there was a, a number of these foundations. And while they actually didn't coordinate very closely, I think that's something that people on the left often assume they did, right? There, there, I always, say there in the book, I mentioned this concept of the myth of diabolical competence, where they sort of imagine that these conservatives are like guys in a Oliver Stone movie, right, sitting in a, you know, a wood paneled room, smoking cigars, going blah, ha, 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 right, <laughs> and, and all coordinating. I think there was actually a lot less coordination, except I think there was some coordination through having similar ideas about how to do the work of philanthropy, right? So they were all had relatively small staffs. They all had this norm of giving mostly um, institutional support and doing so for the long term, right? And so one thing that meant is if you were building a foundation or, or a think tank or something, right, you'd be getting money from a bunch of foundations that all had somewhat similar norms, right? So you could build a base of long-term general operating support as sort of the, the really hard concrete floor of your fundraising and that you could count on, even as you were going and getting money from individual donors. Whereas left to center organizations often have, you know, 
grant, you know, grant makers with very different norms, different time horizons, different reporting things, right? So it's much harder to put together a set of capital that allows them to, to execute on a coherent long-term plan. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to stick on this point about evaluation. So um, you, you make this really important point that um, a lot of the way in which grantees were evaluated, or maybe the only way in which grantees were evaluated, was essentially through this like embedded network, getting information from the grantees themselves and from their kind of peers or like other grantees reporting um, on each other. And that strikes me as yeah, like really different from, I remember like in my early beginnings, I was like more into development economics where this like gold standard is having randomized control trials and then absence of that, still some kind of quantitative back of the envelope kind of calculation. Um, so I've got just like some, I guess like questions or intuitions that like that version of Luca wants to ask. And one of them is just like, why does that lead to good decisions as opposed to being completely skewed by like human biases? I can equally well imagine this story that, um, you know, person X is an asshole. So, you know, they gain a really bad reputation, even if they do a lot of like objectively um, good work. Um, or why, as you mentioned, um, why is it that some foundations or some giving gets this kind of community capture, but it seems that Olin at least was able to still um, be relatively independent or at the very least um, still make good decisions despite of that. Yeah, so, okay, I actually think there's at least three questions in there and you <laughs> tripped onto one of my obsessions that's not 100% related to this, but maybe it is, which is how much I dislike the turn in, in what people call development economics. So I actually think a lot of what people call development economics just simply is not actually development economics, right? They're not actually explaining the sources of, you know, of national wealth and opulence, right? Which is what I understand, at least classically, development economics was, right? It's trying to, you know, to explain the origins of the wealth of nations, right? Um, uh, you know, now it's become really just an extension of pro a program evaluation, right? And But I don't think anybody thinks that any country got to a state of opulence one bed net at a time, right? Or one program evaluated, you know, intervention at a time, right? Development is, in fact, a much more complicated society-wide phenomenon, right? And the sources of that, right, the sources of how South Korea or Taiwan or countries like that, that became wealthy or that Argentina became relatively poor is a story about a much more complex system that's not susceptible of evaluation in the way that um, specific program evaluations are. And this is where, again, I think so one, I actually think that development economics metaphor, right, I'm, I'm calling it a metaphor, right, is, is actually a problem as intellectual armament to bring into this thing in the first place, because I don't think it's really valid in its own domain, right? Or it's, again, it's, it's valid only if we, we recognize that the thing it says it's doing is not what it's actually doing, right? It's not actually explaining. It, it's it's narrowed the problem down to a domain where you can actually evaluate in the way you're talking about, but only by taking out everything that's really important, right? And not talking about it, right? So I think once you do that, right, I do think, and again, this is, you know, it's, it's really unfair to talk about a big wide community like EA or any of that, right? Because there's always exceptions, but um, 
I do think there's too much of a fear of human bias, right? Um, you know, it may, you know, human bias may be one of those things that once you start thinking about, you can't stop thinking about, right? It becomes like an earworm kind of thing and it's in your head, right? And, uh, and so I think sometimes that leads you to a norm of quantification because you believe that'll get you out from under the biases of human cognition. Whereas I think if you recognize that, you know, lots of the information that you need to actually operate, at least in this domain, really is dirty, messy, you know, highly, you know, is, you know, any one piece of that information you need, right? Like, you know, again, if you're evaluating through gossip, right, a lot of that gossip is based on, you know, somebody you know, got drunk and made a pass at somebody's wife at some event, right? And now they don't like them and, right? You know, a good evaluator under those conditions, right, is able to take lots of dirty information and aggregate it through learned judgment and a certain degree of, you know, of self-control and self-knowledge, right? I, I think the best way to avoid human biases in many cases is just the Socratic, right? Know thyself, right? Know what biases you have and uh, actively operate against it. And so I, I sent you, and maybe you can send a link to this article that Mark Schmidt and I wrote called The Elusive Craft of Evaluating Advocacy that was in Stanford Social Innovation Review. And we say that the best way to think about um, grant makers in advocacy like this, the best metaphor is like an intelligence officer, Right. Um, you know, they often have to deal with a bunch of, you know, classified, you know, um, uh, informants who have varying degrees of reliability. Uh, um, they're getting information from official sources. They're getting information for all, all of which, you know, all, you know, all those, those sorts of information they're getting are in some ways problematic, right? And then they're having to process it through their learned judgment. And I, my opinion is mostly there's no substitute for that, right? Um, and that, in fact, going down the route of formalization, um, it's not obvious that that, in fact, is an evidence-based practice, right? That is, I think the evidence-based practice is the thing that these grant makers at places like Olin did, right? That's the thing that we have some reason to believe over a long-term portfolio basis actually works, right? And it's not obvious to me that doing formal evaluation through metrics is itself an evidence-based practice, right? That, that, that I think is the irony of it, right? It is not obvious that people over time have used that to actually produce better policy outcomes, right? That that is being driven less by the evidence of past experience and more by norms of appropriateness. And this is why I consider that to be scientific rather than scientific, if that makes if that distinction makes sense. I know that was a rant. Uh, no, it's interesting. It's good content. I'm, I'm glad you did.
Um, another like really important lesson from the book as well was, and I think you've alluded to this before, uh, or even in, in your answer just now, but the importance of kind of confidential information and gossip. There seemed to be something really important that both grantees and um, donors, you know, essentially saw themselves like on the same team and were maybe willing to disclose information. You use, I think, like very political sciencey language, but I think you refer to it as like the quality of agents. Um, but that is really important that there is like shared trust, um, either directly from grantees or from the peers of grantees um, to report on like what is really happening. And that seems really essential to being able to rely on this like embedded network information. Yeah. So in the book, um, you know, the, the concept that your economist um, uh, listeners will recognize is asymmetric information, right? And philanthropy is full of asymmetric information problems, right? Um, that the, you know, the grantees don't necessarily tell the grantors what's actually happening. The grantors just, you know, just can't process all of the raw information that, that that's out there. Um, you know, and so in many cases, you know, I often use the example, I was at another think tank and at, at one point, and uh, I was talking to people about their foundations and they, they you know, they said, oh, well, they, you know, they, they desperately want metrics from us, right? And I was like, okay, well, what do you do? And they were like, well, we, you know, we, we tell them about how many people show up at our events, right? And I was like, well, is there any evidence that that produces policy outcomes? Like, like absolutely not, because everybody who shows up are all interns, right? But this is a way for us to, you know, to give them something that they believe is real information, right? Um, and... You know, so it's it's really the quality of the information. And again, lots of the information that you need is not publicly available. It's not like you could just process all the publicly available information and get the knowledge about who actually has leverage over policy outcomes. So I'll give you one example of this, that I'm affiliated with the Niskanen Center, which is a think tank in D.C., and a lot of what we do is work directly with legislators, right? We're in their offices, we're talking to them, we're explaining stuff, we're, you know, we're, we're doing all that work, right? Now, most of that work does not actually have a public, you know, there's no like thing where that information is showing up in some, you know, larger data source, right? In the way that like it's in a website are, right? Now, people who are in the business, know who actually are the people that policymakers rely on for advice and the people who aren't, right? That information exists somewhere, right? But the question is, are you actually capable of accessing? Um, and that's where, again, that asymmetric information problem, um, the thing that narrows it is network um, uh, sort of connection, right? Or in some ways, identity between the grantee and the grantor um, is the thing that allows for that information. Now, again, the risk of that, go back, it is again, is grantee capture, right? That, um, that, uh, that both the grantee and the grantor um, are both in a way conspiring against the, uh, the source of the money, right? That both of them know that the thing doesn't work, right? But that's again, where there's no substitute for picking the people with the right attributes to do this work, right? The people who are both in insider outsiders is the way I think the best way to put. It. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be clear, that's referring to the grant makers themselves as insider outsiders or? Yeah. No, they, I think they, you're right. They have to be 
insider enough to access that sort of quality information and they have the experience to be able to sort the wheat from the chaff, right? That the outsider enough to be to to approach it with a critical eye rather than being simply captured by all the assumptions and beliefs of that sort of grantee network. Was there anything else about Olin or maybe some of the other foundations that you think helped avoid grantee capture? I mean, I do think that the 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 fact that they didn't have to hire that many grant makers mattered a lot, right? Um, that, you know, and the, one other thing to say about, you know, that they often had, the people who were led these foundations were often leading for a very long time. And one advantage of that is you've just heard everything before, right? So yeah, you okay. can, yeah. you know, you know, you're going to be, and, and this is, I mean, this is simply an application of, um, of you know, basic uh, psych, Right, which is that um, you know that you get trust under conditions of repeated play, right? That is, if you know that you know your grand your grant maker is going to be gone in a year or two, right? There's less reason to be open than if you're going to be in ten or fifteen years. If you're gonna be, if you think that your grant maker is going to be in for ten or fifteen years, then eventually you're going to get found out if you're BSing, right? I think that was one thing that. I think mattered a lot. And it's also the case that the people on the other side, right, the grantees, the people running some of the large think tanks were in it for a long time, right? So both people on both ends of this were in that relationship. And that, I think, meant that there was, you know, A, a much more of a willingness to admit vulnerability, to admit where, you know, what was working, what wasn't. Um, in a way that wouldn't be if you were always paranoid that your uh, grant maker was going to pull your grant. Yeah. I, I'm curious as well, especially on, on that last point, whether it was important. I mean, I know a lot of this conversation has been focused around just Olin, but that there were other foundations as well. I'm wondering if there was like more competition between donors, whether you think that would have led to better or to worse outcomes. Uh... I don't think there was, I mean, I, I think what was important is the the foundations that were there more or less had relatively similar expectations of their grant grantees, right? So they didn't have to develop a big internal apparatus inside the inside the the, the organizations, right? The grant the grant the grantees just to deal with all the complexity and pathology they were getting from their their grant makers, right? So I, I think that that's probably the thing that mattered the most. Um, I don't think they thought of themselves as competing necessarily, right? I think sometimes you know they would you know they they would take pride in being the the person who found something first because they often did a lot of co investment, right? So in that world, there was a certain amount of credibility from the guy who first you know figured to, to invest in Charles Murray before he wrote Losing Ground or something, right? But, you know, the other important point to make about foundations is they are resource independent, right? They're the only one of the only organizations in society that's resource independent. Um, so so because of that, they don't have the same need to compete because they've already got all the resources, right? Um, whereas everybody else is resource dependent. I mean, uh, another story is, I guess, more centered around the, the grantees experience, but would be that like, if you don't get, you know, the next grant or as much grant money as you wanted from um, organization A, you know that you can turn to organization B and that decision be perhaps relatively independent um, from, from organization A's decision. 
Yeah. So I do think that it, it was important that while they had similarities, they did have separate processes. Um, and especially if you think of yourself as in some sense doing spread betting over that network of organizations, I do think this is a problem sometimes in left of center or even mainstream philanthropy that they spend so much time talking to one another that you get very profoundly isomorphic trends where everybody is got, got a kind of mind meld. Um, whereas, you know, Olin was in New York, Bradley was in Wisconsin, Scaife was in Pittsburgh, Smith Richardson was in, um, you know, Connecticut. You know, they would meet occasionally, but they weren't in this thing where they were in this conference circuit where everybody was constantly going to other meetings with other grant makers, and then they, they got a kind of hive mind, right? And so it was easier for, you know, one set, right, as you were saying, to make that investment and then the others to come in later, right, if it turned out that, um, you know, that other guy or then to, to learn from that other guy not to do it, right, because he did it and it didn't work out. Yeah. So um, I'm aware we're, we're nearing the end of time. So one last topic I want to hit on before we close out is just returning to law and economics, perhaps as a cause area. Um, I framed this before in terms of, you know, how much personalities matter versus, uh, you know, law and economics as an idea in the abstract matters and perhaps want to um, revisit that briefly. Um, it seems really important that the conservative movement focused on law and economics as the field to try and gain more influence in law school and courts, as opposed to, and I think you mentioned this in your book, um, constitutional law. I'm curious whether that was overdetermined that the Olin Foundation would focus on law and economics just because that's what works and that's like what people gravitated towards, or whether that was a critical selection decision, either by the Olin Foundation itself or by early grantees. So one thing to recognize, and again, I think this is another thing that's actually very distinctive, is law and economics was not something that was cooked up in a foundation, right? It was cooked up by these actual legal, you know, scholars and people like that, and they eventually sold it to foundations, right? Um, and I think that's, again, important for this story because it wasn't like they selected it right that was the thing that was available right um they you know were mostly reactive in olin's case they did a little bit more to drive at least the creation of olin centers at law schools but the overall project of law and economics was something that came to them rather than something that they created out of their sort of godhead Right. And I think that's is really important that there's a good argument for being reactive. Right. Now, again, in some sense, a lot of my work is about telling people that the thing they think is should is stigmatized should not be. Right. <laughs> but there's a good argument for, for saying your job is that there are people out there in the world who actually know stuff. Right. Who are discovering things from engaging in practice. Right. And what you want to have is sort of your ear to the ground to hear the things that really are are going and, and creating change and then getting behind that and sort of providing more juice, right? And I think that's what it was, that was the case with law and economics. Later on, it became that, that with originalism, right? Um, which was in constitutional law and they did get behind when they, when they did it, 
right? Many of them also invested in other kinds of um, for variations of conservative law that didn't work out um, as much. But the thing, again, the point I would make is that um, mostly they were reactive. They provided resources to the people who were actually doing the work, right, and who were proving that they were able to get results. And they learned that by network forms of evaluation, right? Um, and it's very different than models where like smart people and foundations come up with they think are clever ideas and they find people who they deal with as contractors to go out and do the work. And that's, you know, there's lots of foundations that do that work. And I don't think that they on average get the results, right, that you would think of from doing this other form of philanthropy. Yeah, yeah. That seems something really distinct about law and economics as well, in the sense that it, on the one hand, you know, was useful enough a tool that judges were open towards learning about it or incorporating uh, it into, you know, either their, you know, if you're a professor, your lectures, or if you're a judge, uh, your decision making. Um, and at the same time, just kind of steering people towards conservatism without being explicitly conservative. You mentioned originalism as perhaps being um, like another idea, but I'm curious whether using these two factors as a framework, whether any other you know, concepts or subjects strike you as having that similar um, dynamic in being, on the one hand, useful, and on the other hand, steering somebody towards more of an ideological outcome. Yeah, so what, one thing to say, maybe this is relevant to the EA-ish kind of stuff, right? One thing I, I always found really interesting about conservatives um, is, and this goes all the way back, you know, to the 50s, is they really cared about students, Right. Uh, and in some ways, the easiest thing to get conservative, even to this day, the easiest thing to get conservative donors to invest in is anything to do with students. Now, part of that is because there's this long term belief that, like, you know, academic institutions are brainwashing kids. Right. And turning them into the kind of kids who come home and like in a surly way, tell their parents that their ideas are bad. You know, so many of them have a personal experience with that. Like when they're, you know, they're a nice conservative kid comes home with like a piercing and they're like, oh, university. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think, you know, that they, they've been able to make that a sort of domain of investment, even though that's like the most indirect long-term, you know, you invest in some, speaker for kids are in college and maybe it doesn't you know bear fruit for 25 years right but they seem to have figured out how to get people to be okay investing in that right um even though it's got very long long-term kind of things right my actual favorite conservative organization which we haven't talked about is the liberty fund um Many of the projects that Henry Manny did actually were joint with the Liberty Fund. And what the Liberty Fund basically does is take people away for three days to a nice resort to sit around and like talk about Adam Smith's Wilson Nations, right? Or Hume or whatever. That's and that's it, right? They don't evaluate the long-term outcomes, right? Now it turns out that there's enormous number of very valuable indirect outputs that have come out of the Liberty Fund, right? huge number of people who I know in the conservative libertarian movement all know a bunch of other people because they went to some, you know, conference in, you know, the mountains of North Carolina to talk about Virgil, 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, <laughs> did the fact that they were all reading Virgil was that the thing that no. Right. But it was the fact that they all have these and it goes back to the network evaluation. Right. A lot of those networks. Right. Are produced by that activity. And then there's all these network externalities that are generated by that. Right. And that's where, again, I think the ability to invest in all that activity that seems very distant from the final outcome and where the traceability chains between that and the final thing you want to do is really tenuous. Um, you know, I think is a challenge for people who operate within the EA kind of worldview, right? Um, because, right, so much of that is about, you know, again, I think for understandable moral reasons, wanting to be able to say that you're investing in the highest return on investment, act, you know, use of philanthropic resources. But it may be an, an obstacle to being able to think about how you actually, over long periods of time, actually produce the most good. Yeah, yeah. Um, one final question then before we close out is maybe to, because we've been talking about, you know, the competences and um, uh, impact that the Olin Foundation and, and the conservative movement has had. Um, from doing your work, was there anything that struck you as a mistake? I imagine it's difficult to find or to counterfactually think about successes that never happened. But on the flip side, we can maybe think about some of the like mistakes that set the movement uh, back or anything um, from where you would be, um, yeah, point, point, pointing to as a mistake. Well, I mean, one thing, of course, to know is that if you're in a spread betting mentality, all the things that didn't hit aren't necessarily a mistake, right? They're just, you know, if you're gambling, right, you know, and you're trying to get a six and you got one through five, it wasn't a mistake. That was just the, the way the odds worked out, right? But one thing I would say is I keep threatening myself with writing a book about evaluating conservatives investments in universities overall right with the exception of law schools which is you know i wrote a book about right and i think they've been a little more successful in the thing that's striking is despite that enormous investment that conservatives have made over a very long time in universities universities just keep going further to the left Right. And just just in broad terms of like the predispositions of the faculty and their notions of appropriate pedagogical practice, whatever you call it. Right. I don't think anybody can really deny that they've invested a lot and they all the trend. Now, maybe the thing would have gone over the cliff even faster if it wasn't for them. Right. But for one reason or another, it doesn't seem like they mostly succeeded in political science and sociology and history and English literature. And I'm not sure, you know, they did make investments in a lot of those areas. Um, but in the aggregate, for one reason or another, they didn't seem to have uh, encountered the strategy that would allow them to get really significant leverage. Now, it's also possible that there was no such strategy, right? That is, there are some, you know, I'm enough of a conservative to think that there are some things that are conditions rather than problems, right? Like, you know, it, it, you know if there's a hailstorm, that's bad, but it's not a problem, it's a condition. It's a thing that, that just is a thing over which we have no agency. So, but that, that would be the closest thing I would get to something that, you know, I, or I would just describe as a 
durable bad outcome that yeah. maybe was a mistake or maybe wasn't. And one way I maybe want to briefly reframe my question is there's a difference between, you know, investing in something and it not paying off at all and investing in something and it actively creating a harm, you know, such that it affects your other grantees um, or actually like, you know, gives the liberals a win or something. I'm wondering if there was anything um, in that space that maybe comes to mind. But no worries if not. I mean, nothing, nothing really in particular. I mean, again, the example of conservative public interest law to some degree took up a lot of oxygen in the 70s that um, maybe could have gone uh, into something else. Um, but it's also not clear that if they hadn't had the learning experience of going through that, that they would have been open to strategies with a very different sort of theory of action. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, well, it's a it's a really interesting um, topic. And I highly recommend to listeners uh, to check out your book. Um, I guess this takes us to the end of the interview where I've only got two last questions to ask. Um, the first one is, can you recommend three books uh, or other resources for people to learn more about things that we've talked about today? Oh, boy, I have not thought about that nearly as I should. So one thing I, I would I would just recommend my own article, which is a terrible thing to do with this one on the elusive craft of evaluating advocacy. Um, I was really influenced by Jim Scott seeing like a state. Um, so, uh, and actually by, by, by Hayek. Um, uh, I actually have a version of, of this lecture I've given on some of my philanthropic stuff called the sort of, um, Hayekian, uh, approach to philanthropy. Uh, but I actually think that the information problem, the Hayekian information problem, is like a really fundamental thing that people who do philanthropy need to uh, to grapple with. And I think um, Scott's insight about the difficulty of really appreciating complex social reality from the center um, also has real real implications. And um, you know, both of those are. And then the other thing I would actually emphasize is. This book by Aaron McDonald, um, uh, Aaron Metz McDonald, who's at um, uh, Notre Dame, uh, who has a book called Patchwork Leviathan, um, which is about uh, you know the creation of state capacity in less developed countries, and it looks at you know where that comes from, and it often comes from um, little what she calls again patchwork, right? Little parts of the state where people can sort of form some form of like competence or, you know, or bureaucratic autonomy or level of, of skill. And I, I think that's actually a really useful insight to where change comes from. It often doesn't come from changing everything. It comes from finding one place to sort of burrow in and then gradually expand, um, expand out. So those are sort of three things I would suggest. Amazing. Yeah. And we'll include links to, to all of those um, on our website. So and I promise this is the very final question then, uh, which is where can people find you and your work online? Uh, I mean, either. I mean, the best way probably is either my website at the Scannon Center where I'm a senior fellow um, or uh, I, I, I studiously avoid uh, Twitter or any other <laughs> form of social media. So you'll actually have to go up and just go go old school and find my uh, my work. Yeah. Well, awesome. Uh, Steve Tellers, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That was Stephen Tellers on the conservative legal movement and evaluating advocacy. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Tellers. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout her interview, plus a whole lot more. And if you enjoyed this podcast and find it valuable, then one of the best ways to help us out is to write a review on whatever platform you're listening to. 
Uh, you can also give us a shout out on Twitter. We're at Hear This Idea. Uh, we also have a short feedback survey, which should only take you somewhere between five to 10 minutes to fill out. Um, we read every submission, and as a thank you, you'll also get a free book from us. Uh, a big thanks as always to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes, and thanks very much to you for listening. <laughs>